This is Contra Radio from Contra.Scot. Welcome, dear parishioners, to the final Sunday Salmon of 2022. This week I want to take a slightly more philosophical look at where we are as the year closes. A few weeks ago, UK census data was released, showing a country in a state of transition. The main attraction, at least for the social media adult, proved to be the increasing ethnic diversification of Britain. Lurid claims were promoted, by Nigel Farage among others, that England's three largest conurbations, London, Birmingham and Manchester, had all become majority non-white. The claim isn't true at all. Both London and Manchester remain majority white cities. Only Birmingham, long the multiracial capital, is now 49% white, if that sort of thing troubles you. The dreary cycles of the culture war spun to life. Right-wing grifters feigning soggy knickers for handouts, and leftoids who've learned their entire worldview from Twitter's treacle glaze of business-friendly cosmo-liberalism engaged in dubious, if familiar, battle. The former raged uncomprehendingly, against the decline of British civilization, some 130 years after that decline measurably began. The latter, overwhelmingly white themselves, proclaimed that Britain's de-whitening is good because white people are bad cooks, worse dancers plus wicked colonialists, in that form of edgy online humour that is part wind-up of the right-wing enemy, part desperate attempt to appear relevant at the difficult age of 37. These false claims of majority non-white cities were vivified by another claim, that Britain is no longer a majority Christian nation. Here, the right failed to note that these two supposedly declinist trends work against each other. One of the only saving graces for Christianity in the UK has been the infusions of believers from Africa and Eastern Europe. Regardless, this observation led some who've scarcely cracked a Bible or set foot in a church in their lives to yet more shrill protestations. The good old Britain is gone, they said, as though any of them can remember a time when Britain, long a bastion of secularism and with an old and robust atheist minority, was a truly hegemonically Christian nation. You'd need to go back to the Britain of John Major for a country where a mere 50% professed allegiance to the Anglican Communion, and only a small minority of those will have been true churchgoers. There are more than 4 million fewer Christians today than 20 years ago, and the ranks of the faithless have swollen by 6.4 million. For some, perhaps the most spiritually minded, this may not matter a great deal. If God is real, and one's faith in him persists, it's of little account what happens in this material realm. For those who have an intuitive understanding that religions count as essentially human institutions, the hunt is on for the salvation of the living church. Here's how this argument usually goes. The liberal religious decry the stubborn conservatism of the church. The denominations, they claim, are too interested in traditions, rituals, hierarchies and theology. The young are full of passion for many causes. The environment, for example, or LGBT rights. The church cannot connect with them because it is stuck in its own crusty, misogynist, politically complacent past. 
On the other hand, the conservative religious protest that it is precisely adaptation to the sinful world that has sapped the pews. The church's appeal is to timeless values against a faddy, disposable culture of moral emptiness. If the church merely reflects Gomorrah, what's the point of its existence? This debate, or some version of it, has been raging without halt for decades. It is a fruitless back and forth, as both perspectives are doomed. Resist liberalism and you will degenerate into a sect. Your congregants will be like submariners plunging into the depths, the weight of the ocean building until it crushes them. But open the hatch and let liquid modernity in and you'll be washed out. Any Christian recruited from identity politics or eco-apocalypse won't stay for long. Outre liberals have the fanaticism not of the born-again Christian, but of the Black Friday panic buyer. They are consumers. They'll grow bored of your rainbow church and chase the next big thing. Today it's poor brown people in darkest Asia. Tomorrow it's bombing the shit out of these same people to teach them the value of women's rights. And before you say this is an exaggeration, let me remind you that the liberal fads for Black Lives Matter and continuing the 20-year NATO occupation of Afghanistan in the name of that country's women existed within months of each other. Perhaps you've guessed by now I'm not just talking about the faith of our fathers. I have some sympathies for Christians, because like them, I belong to a credo, socialism, that has been sidelined by late modernity. I know the melancholy of holding on to a belief system once adored and fought for by millions that has since fallen into its deepest ever nadir. For the Christian and the socialist alike, no past generation, at least not since the persecuted founding fathers of each, has had to face the challenges we do, and with so few resources. Neither St Augustine nor Karl Marx can tell you what to do once your movement has surged to the peak and then collapsed into the pit. They never knew anything remotely like it, could not possibly have envisaged it. Indeed, both of them, and many more, were apostles of movements in the early stages of ascent, giving battle to the ideologues of the status quo. In addition, therefore, to the search for Christ-likeness or the critique of capital, Christians and socialists must now also contend with the reality of their own world historic defeats. There's one final burden we both share, and it's the heaviest of all. I spoke earlier about the faithless and their growth as a demographic. Of course, they aren't actually faithless at all. They have simply supplanted the Christian mode of ideology, largely a holdover from earlier formations of capitalism, with newer modes. As Tara Button has argued in her book Strange Rights, these new parapolitical subcultures tend to have their own idols, rituals, dogmas and doctrines, and these newer ideologies have deep philosophical preoccupations. Across the spectrum of modern political thought, left and right, and within these categories, increasingly serrated as they are by the culture war, the struggle is invariably over this one master preset. It can be vast like this. I can do whatever I want so long as this does not harm another, nor restrict their right to do what they want. In the end, every debate in contemporary culture boils down to how one interprets where the line falls, where my rights end and yours begin. It is the same fault line, whether the debate is the right to strike versus the right of the public to access services, as in Sunak versus McLynch, the right to dress up like a Mexican bandito at Halloween versus a Mexican person's right to fair representation, 
the right of a trans woman to compete in women's sports against the right to sex-segregated sports, the right of Afghans to live without foreign occupation versus the right of Afghan women to go to university under Western armed tutelage. On and on it goes. Turn over any current debate and you'll find the same fundamental terms of engagement. Where does the line go? Where do my rights end and your rights begin? In a society where Christian hegemony has been supplanted, and challengers like Marxian socialism defeated and removed from contestation, this is the new hegemony. It melds morality, etiquette and politics, forming the keynote of an entire epoch. When capitalist liberalism was young and virile, this formula propelled its struggle for universal values, democratic rights, national and popular sovereignty, freedom from the diktats of the church. But by our own times, this youthful vigour is all but spent. The pluralist hegemony, with its injunction to do as thou wilt, so long as this does not intrude upon the liberty of others, is heavily pregnant with the seeds of anti-universalism. Morbid particularisms sprout everywhere. With the goal of ultimate human emancipation thwarted, the poisoned legacy of the defeat of socialism in the 20th century, all that remains is to carve out fiefdoms and make claims against enemy tribes. Naturally, it is a struggle that leaves property and class relations entrenched. Alistair MacIntyre, the Scottish Marxist-turned-Catholic philosopher, when trying to encourage his Christian following to embrace Marxism in the 1950s, wrote, Only one secular doctrine retains the scope of traditional religion in offering an interpretation of human existence, by means of which men may situate themselves in the world and direct their actions to ends that transcend those offered by their immediate situation. Marxism. Finding a way back to a revolutionary universalism, that's the final daunting task of anyone who wants out of this morass. Neither retreating from the world nor adapting to its futile and regressive spirits will suffice. Nor can the old capitalist, nationalist or classical liberalism simply be re-established as some status quo ante. Only a challenge to this rotted pluralism can allow civilization to move forward and to break from the fundamental class and proprietarian structures that hold us in limbo. That epic task will have to wait for another year. Whether Christian, socialist or adrift in the swamp of late liberal confusion, I wish you all a Merry Christmas. Want more like this? Subscribe to Contra Radio on our SoundCloud, iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Sign up to our regular newsletter at contra.substack.com and find great articles and more at contra.scot. We really rely on listeners like you to help us grow. In return, you get access to exclusive content and events by joining our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Contra Scott. 